This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season will bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. The track session you're about to hear today is about connecting culture to kingdom. And one aspect of discipleship that comes out in this five-episode series is that discipleship has different contexts. Bobby Harrington, point leader for Discipleship.org, has co-authored a book with Alex Absalom on this topic called Discipleship That Fits. Well, Discipleship.org has partnered with Zondervan to release this sampler as a free ebook. Understand discipleship in the major forms it can take in terms of the group size from our personal walk with Christ to the crowds. Download this for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Discipleship That Fits. That's discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Discipleship That Fits. Today we're featuring an episode from Navigators Church Ministries and their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Connecting Culture to Kingdom. The episode for today is called Connecting Culture to Kingdom Through Church Strategy, featuring Bill Mowry. Well, let me introduce myself. I'm Bill Mowry, and I work with the Navigators Church Ministries, and I live in Columbus, Ohio, home of the Ohio State University. Go by. Go by. That's right. Yes, yeah, my lovely assistant over here that's going to be... <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, this uh, anyhow. So, uh, so I'm on staff. The Navigators work with their church ministries, and all I do is work with pastors and churches, helping them build cultures of disciple making. And and one of the elements that is often neglected in thinking about building a culture of disciple making is not out of, in a sense, purposeful neglect, but sometimes we kind of just don't get around to it. And that is, how do we build then into this culture? the spirit of evangelism. What's evangelism look like? How can we build a strategy for evangelism in, in a local church? And so that's what we're talking about today. It's connecting culture to the kingdom through a church strategy. All right. And so this is kind of some principles on how to build an entire church approach to evangelism. Next slide, please. Now, probably all of you here, if I say, how many of you would like to, if this was an infomercial, and say, how many would like to be a millionaire? Probably a few of us would be godly enough to raise our hands. But uh, the reality is, is that if I could present to you a program that was going to guarantee church growth, converts, people doing evangelism, et cetera, et cetera, if we could package that and market it, we'd probably all be millionaires. Because the reality is the church is looking for something like that. And what we're going to talk about today is not a program that's going to lead to lots and lots of converts, although hopefully the principles would, but we're going to talk about a principled approach. What are just some basic principles to build into the life of a church that's going to develop a kind of a whole church approach to evangelism? And in the process over the next hour, to varying degrees of emphasis here, we're going to talk about three strategies. We're going to talk about four simple skills, and then we're actually going to build on these skills over the next two sessions. We're going to talk about two two places, three people, and then a process. And all of these are going to have varying degrees of emphasis, but this is where we're going in this time. So this is not 
a program. This is not a formula. This is not a franchise that I'm selling. But we want to look at a biblical approach and principles to build a whole church culture of evangelism. Okay? And so this would be starting in your note, notes here. And this would be the uh, page labeled Connecting Culture to Kingdom Through Church Strategies. Okay? So we want to follow along in your notes. Now, as I think about evangelism, uh, the picture of juggling comes to mind. <laughs> and, uh, and I was actually going to have been tempted to think about actually learning how to juggle, but I've never gotten around to it. But when you think of juggling, you're trying to keep minimally three balls up in the air at the same time, right? And in juggling something, that uh, also there are times where one ball gets higher or maybe more prominent than the other balls, but over time they all get into this routine of kind of these three balls that I'm juggling and I'm trying to keep up in the air. But let me suggest that these three principles we're going to be talking about are kind of, you might say, the three balls that you're juggling in the local church to build in this strategy of evangelism. And so what are those three balls? Well, the three balls are go to, come to, and do good. So I have the, the go-to ball, I have the come-to ball, and I have the do-good ball. In all three of those, I'm trying to keep up in the air in a local church setting as to a principled approach to evangelism. Okay, And this is, by the way, this is kind of the, the majority of what we're going to talk about in this hour, and an hour is going to really go fast. And, but it's, it's pretty simple, I like keeping things simple. And that I'd like to suggest that, man, if a church is doing this, God's going to do something. So what I'd like to do is to illustrate these three balls that we're going to be juggling. And so the go-to ball is pretty straightforward, that how do we help people go to their neighbors, right where they live and where they work and where they play? How can we help them go, start faith conversations, be carriers of the Gospels by living in and among lost people? How do we encourage people to go? Second is that how do we design some come-to events? That is, opportunities to kind of invite those friends that we're connecting with out here to kind of come to, see the body of Christ at work, see the gospel lived out in people's lives in some selected ways that are relevant, sensitive to the hearers, but Christ-centered. What are some come-to approaches? And the third one is do good. How can we as a church be about serving our local neighborhoods and our communities and doing good? A couple of verses to hang this on. As you think about the go-to, you know, the one classic go-to verse that I like, and it's, it's a little bit of an obscure, obscure verse, in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus heals the demon-possessed man. Although I had a friend of mine that said, there's a great sermon title here. If you want to preach on Mark 5, here's a great sermon title. The title is, Here's a Nude Dude in a Rude Mood. All right? In Mark 5. And so after the, uh, this nude dude in a rude mood has been healed, you know, he wants to follow Jesus, and what's Jesus say to him? He says, go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So in other words, go back. Go back to your family and to your friends. Go to these people that you have natural relationships with them and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. A classic passage on the come to 
is John 1, right? So what happens in John 1? Let me find this here. And so that one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found a Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So finding somebody to come to and to see Jesus. And so in John 1, 40 and 41, kind of a little bit of an example of somebody coming to, inviting somebody to come to Jesus. Now, the third one is doing good. And this is a descriptor about the ministry of Jesus in John 10, 38. And it says this about Jesus. How God anointed Jesus in Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus went about doing good. And we see the example of that in the early church. Now, I'm going to take a little detour. I'm not going to get into decided. You all are, are good Bible scholars. You probably got plenty of other verses to supplement these three ministries. So I'd like to take a couple minutes and amplify these three by looking at the example of the early church. That is, I did a study a few years ago. After, you know, the apostles kind of pass on, and from about 180 to about 325 with, you know, Constantine coming to the throne, how did evangelism happen in the early church? What marked the spread of the gospel in the early church? And quite frankly, what happened was that these three themes kind of came out of that study. So what I'd like to do for the next just couple of minutes is highlight each of these three balls by looking at the example of the early church. So this is just fascinating. So let me, let me state it with, in going to. It was the year 242 in the Christian era. The young Roman emperor, Gordian III, was preparing to march east to defend the imperial boundaries of Rome. Okay, all the emperors are always at war. Before marching to battle, he paid public homage to the gods by ordering a new athletic festival in honor of Athena. It was a logical step. Worship of Athena and the other pagan gods had been going on uninterrupted for at least a thousand years. In barely a lifetime later, another Roman emperor set out on a similar expedition. This emperor scorned Athena's protection. Constantine and his troops marched under the sign of the cross. With stunning suddenness, Christianity had emerged at the center of the Mediterranean world. So in about 200 years or so, what happened? How revolutionary was this? In just two centuries, how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classic paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? And I'd like to suggest that the early church's strategy may surprise all of us a little bit. You know, even though public evangelism dominates the book of Acts, and again, a lot of times that's where our sample examples come from, right? The dominant preaching, public preaching in the book of Acts, the growth in succeeding centuries was largely informal and done through relationships. All right, catch that? It was largely informal and done through relationships. When the legal and social climate turned against the church after the apostles, the private approach of evangelizing one's friends became the natural strategy. Private houses were the chief locus of evangelism. One historian says missionaries are just not mentioned in those first couple of centuries. 
Evangelism took new forms in a hostile culture because it was dangerous to give evangelism speeches in public. The Romans were this law and order culture, and so that if these speeches would generally incite a riot, we see that all the way through the book of Acts, and so the Romans did not like riots. <laughs> and so that you could not conduct these large kind of evangelistic crusades, public evangelism like that didn't happen. One historian says, we have no historical text which refers to formal open-air sermons outside a church after the mid-first century. We cannot name a single active Christian missionary between St. Paul and the age of Constantine. So, okay, if there's no public preaching and there's no formal missionaries, how did the gospel advance? While they excluded themselves, okay, if public evangelism was illegal and inappropriate, how was the gospel advanced? It was done in the natural social networks in which believers lived, worked, or played. Historian Michael Green writes, and I love this statement, the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. This was not formal preaching, but the informal chattering to friends, chance acquaintanceships, in homes and wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. Isn't that a great statement? <laughs> and these are informal missionaries. They were not people who were paid to do these things. They were just regular disciples. And they went about gossiping the gospel. Now, while they excluded themselves from the pagan social settings, as neighbors, these believers were everywhere. Their point of contact with non-Christians lay at the street corners, places of employment, or in the working quarters of dwellings. One historian says that in their secular lives, Christians thus appear not to have been in the least bit ghettoized. That is, where they only hung out together as believers, creating a Christian ghetto. So what did God do? You know, he moved the gospel out through these relational lines of people as people were engaged in going and living among lost people. In fact, the word, you know, this is fascinating, that the word merchant, says Assyriac Christian writers used the word merchant as a metaphor for those who spread the gospel. So those of you who are in workplace ministries, the idea of a merchant traveling on his trade routes, they just naturally engaged people in conversation as they were going. So right in the midst of where they lived and where they worked and where they played, people were gossiping the gospel. And so that relationships among lost people, because they lived among these lost people, was a natural growth for the gospel. So that makes sense, you know? And so this is pretty simple. So one of these is, how do we just get people out there, you know, starting faith conversations right where they live and where they work and where they play? Now the come-to piece. So I'm illustrating the go-to. The come-to, this is fascinating too. You know, and, and so the question is, when does Sunday school clash with reality? You know, when I was growing up in Sunday school, the popular Sunday school picture of the early Christians were, is where the two guys were standing in a robe and one guy kind of drew the little fish on the sand, you know, because the church was persecuted and it was a secret society. Now, there's a couple of fallacies wrong with that. Uh, one is that if it was such a secret society, how would the church ever grow? If it was so secret, how would it ever grow? You know, while persecution and peer pressure drove the church from public settings, Christianity remained accessible to people. Unlike the pagan gods whose worship and membership was secretive and exclusive, Christianity was never a secret sect. After all, how could the church grow if it was a secret? 
A Christian could not hide his or her faith in a Roman city. Now get this, people were jammed in tiny cubicles in multi-story tenements. Antioch characterized most major cities. It's estimated now, listen to this, that the density crush in Antioch was 117 people per acre. By comparison, Chicago registers 21 people per acre, and downtown Manhattan records 37 per acre. And so you get a feel for it. So you're not going to hide your faith. So when you think of all those New Testament passages that winning the respect of the outsiders, you know, always being prepared to make a defense in 1 Peter 3.15, they were kind of all living on top of one another. It was common knowledge where the Christians met. You know, the, uh, in such cramped quarters, privacy was, far, was hard to find. Much of life was lived on the streets and the sidewalks. While excluding themselves from pagan social settings, Christians were everywhere as neighbors. Now, I love this statement. It says, one Christian apologist wrote, We live together with you in this world, including the forum, including the meat market, baths, shops, workrooms, inns, fairs, and arrested commercial intercourse, and we sail along with you and serve in the army or an active in agriculture and trade. So they're everywhere. And what did they do? Again, we know that the early church met in homes. You know, they actually have um, archaeological digs where they figured out how people expanded rooms to their homes because they would find in these homes and the foundations Christian symbols. And so they invited their lost friends to their homes to come to events in their homes. And so they were everywhere. They had relationships with people. Then they invited them to come into these house churches. Now, I'm not advocating house church as the form, but it's that principle of inviting people to come. And they can invite people to come because they had relationships with those people. So we got the go-to ball. We're putting that one up in the air. We got the come-to ball. We're putting that up in the air. Now, how about the do-good ball? And this is really, this is really interesting. Life was hard in the Roman cities. Most families lived a squalid life in filthy and cramped quarters and nearly half of all children died at birth or during infancy. I mean, half of all children died at birth or infancy. The stench of the cities added to the bleakness of life. Cities must have been smothered in flies, mosquitoes, and other insects that flourished in stagnant water and exposed filth. No wonder life expectancy was less than 30 years. Now, the early church preached, and as best, best practice, love in a widespread, in a culture of widespread brutality, sexuality, and death. And Christian communities did not consider themselves an in-group, but they cared only for their own selves. Take, for example, the plagues that would periodically sweep through the empire. The death tolls were horrific at the side of the plagues. In, in 250, you know, the Christian era, probably 5,000 people died daily in Rome. Isn't that wild? 5,000 people died daily. When these epidemics swept through the cities, the explanatory and comforting ability of paganism and Greek philosophy failed to provide hope or meaning. In fact, a pagan priest would, would flee the cities. There was an assumption if you go to the mountains, get the higher air, you wouldn't catch the plague. But the Christian stayed. The Christian stayed. And the Christian stayed and cared and buried those who were dying. It says most of one Diana, Dionysus writes that uh, most of our Christian brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending their every need, drawing in themselves the sickness of the neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. 
the best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. The heathen behaved in a very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away, fled from the dearest, throwing themselves in the road, wanting to get away from this fatal disease. What did Christians do? They stayed and they cared. They did good. They practiced compassion. Historian Robin Fox notes that the church gave a powerful counter to anxiety. Among second century authors, it's the Christians who are the most confident and assured. There's a magnificent optimism in their theology. And by the way, Fox is, uh, is not a believer. He's probably an atheist. He's a British historian. But you get the picture here? This is the early church involved in doing good and showing compassion to people. And in that compassion, people saw that there's a difference in what these people are like. So as we think of a threefold approach to evangelism, you know, to think of it in terms of how do we give people the motivation and skills to go, you know, how can we begin to design some relevant strategic Christ-centered places, events to invite people to come to, then how do we go about doing good? And along with doing good, we've got good words that accompany it. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Now, let me just illustrate this, how we work this out at my local church, uh, Linworth Baptist. So we provided training to help people, you know, go to others and to start faith conversations. This is how do I start a conversation? How do I build relationships with my unbelieving friends? So we gave training in how to do that. We taught them how to share their story, you know, how to share his story, how to start conversations. One summer, we gave out uh, gift cards from Kroger so that they could sponsor a neighborhood gathering with, uh, you know, a neighborhood party with their neighbors just to connect with people. So how do they go to people? And then we would think through, as a church, we'd have some strategic come-to events. And we'd think about not only how do you publicize it, but how do you help people think about who to invite and how would you invite people to such an event? And then we thought about how can we do good in our neighborhood? And so we chose to invest um, in serving a local elementary school that was about three blocks away from our church. And so sitting down with the principal and the guidance counselor this elementary school, we presented to them that we just want to come in and serve your school. We don't want our name to be mentioned. We're not there to proselytize. We're not there to invite people to a VBS. We just want to, in practical ways, for the, to show the love of God to serve people in our community. And we've been serving that school for six years now. And, um, and what was fascinating, in talking to the principal, she said, you know, we already have a prayer meeting going on in our school that some teachers organized. Hey, that's pretty cool. And, and so we did things, the usual stuff, backpacks, you know, mittens, gloves, you know, a variety of things over the years. Then about two years ago, the teacher came to us, the principal came to us, said that, came to our senior pastor and said, you know, uh, the teacher that was heading up that prayer meeting got transferred to another school. How would you like to come in and lead the prayer meeting? <laughs> with the teachers there in the public school. And so Brent is now leading this because we just went there to serve. We didn't tell the parents that things were provided by Linworth Baptist Church. We just provided them free of charge to come and serve. The teacher, the principal, she was in about two months ago, kind of in the fall. We have our fall drive to collect for it, you know, backpacks and stuff. I mean, she breaks down in tears because she just loves her kids in that school. And she says, you know, we've been nominated for a national honor as a school. And I want you to know that we never would have achieved this ranking if it weren't for your service to our school. Just doing good. And then it opens up opportunities, you know, to start faith conversations. And so as we think about churches then is that how do we then develop some strategies that, you know, 
How do we get the go-to, helping people to go? How do we develop some strategies about some come-to events? And then what's our strategy for doing good in the community? Does this make sense? And so this is a principle, and so this gives you a lot of opportunities to kind of be creative as a church, to think about how you do that. Now, what I'd like to do is you'll see in your notes a little assessment. And let me find my... This is a, assessing the evangelism strategy of your church. And we're just going to have you look at two parts of this. You're going to look at the go-to and the come-to. And what I'd like to do, have you do is on a scale of... One to two and four to five. By the way, it took out three because everybody wants to do three, right? You know, we always end up in the middle. So we just toss that out. By the way, if you have any professional researchers in here, probably just driving you crazy. But um, anyhow, so a scale of one to two, four to five, one being the low, five being the high. Rate the following regarding your, your church, okay? And uh, then we're going to have you talk about it. Yes? Does he need one? I'll give you that. There we go. Thanks. Okay, then we're going to talk. Hey, you need a, we got a couple more back here. All right. Great. Hey, thanks a lot. And uh, so let me have you fill it out, and then uh, we'll actually talk around the tables. If everybody's done, watch you, yeah, jump into it and just talk about what you discover about maybe some of the strengths and areas of growth for your church in, this, in these two areas. Okay, uh, let me pull this together here if I could. And let's just talk for a couple minutes here. So in walking through this little assessment, uh, maybe what were some of the strengths you discovered about your church in the, either the go-to or the come-to piece? Yeah, what were some of the strengths you discovered? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. That's the challenge. Yes. Yeah. So good for you. You're providing the instruction and training. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you're finding you're attracting people who are doing, who are engaging with lost friends. Yes, encouraging, and but how do you provide to support? Ah. Okay. I got you. Yeah. So that's kind of where the training piece he was talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about the training piece here in a minute. Anything else you discovered about a strength of your church? Yes. We have in my church something similar. We have people, we hear regular stories of people reaching out. Yes. But everywhere, in spite of not doing any of the things. Yes. Yeah, you're hearing stories of people reaching out. Yes. Yeah, and I guess what I'm challenging you to do is, hey, can, as leaders, can we think about how can we make this a little more intentional? You can't just program it. This is something the Spirit of God does, but we can't make it more intentional. How about some things you discovered? Yes, sir. Well, at our church this fall, we started a uh, soccer training program. Oh, okay. Program, yeah. Okay, in the gym and had coaches in there to provide soccer training, sort of like an upwards. Yes. Cycle. Yes. It wasn't, wasn't upwards. It 
But what was interesting to me was a lot of the families would just simply come, drop their kids I know. off, and go away. There just wasn't enough intentionality yes. to reach back out to the families. That yes, that yes. Where we missed the mark. <laughs> yes. And aren't you going to address some of that, Tony? Yeah, I'm going to yeah, turn it as a disciple-making tool tomorrow in the, uh, the fourth track. Yes. Yeah, I'll be honest, what we've worked at in our church and what I've decided is that, and churches I know that have been involved with us, the giveaways aren't the way to go. It's how can you give away in the context where there can be some sustainable relationships happening. And so I've got, you know, I can build, rather than just handing something out, how can I build a relationship? Like one church I'm working with, they have uh, for about a month, in the fall, they have a free car repair night. Well, what they've decided now is that they're not going to open it up for the whole area. They're just inviting their immediate neighborhood. And then they invite people in for a meal while the car is being checked on. And so then they can interact. See, so now it becomes a sustainable relationship. And so how can you, you know, build do-good events that allow you to sustain relationships? How about anything else that stood out that maybe was an area of growth for you? Yes, people expect the church. Yes. So, what did uh, the historian, uh, you know, say? And okay, that it's spread by informal missionaries. In fact, you know, that's the idea of. Um, in fact, and he, he makes a point. He says that by people who are not paid to say that sort of thing. And so, I, I, I think of it as being these. Are, the gospel was spread by ministry amateurs. And by amateur, amateur in a Latin sense means a lover. It's somebody that you might be an amateur photographer that may or may not describe the quality of your work, but it's describing the fact that you do photography because you love photography. In fact, you may have made better than some professionals, and you love it and you're not expecting to be paid for it. And so this is, it's spread by ministry amateurs because the reality is, is that this is where I feel a sermon coming on, that particularly in the workplace, and we're going to talk about neighborhood too here, is that the reality is, is that most staff, the vocational hazard of somebody on staff in a church or in a ministry like I work with is we have no non-Christian friends unless I make some because life is so busy and we're just involved with Christians. And so that evangelism then becomes something I announce from the pulpit. And, but the reality is all of you out here have probably a whole slew of more friends than I can shake a stick at. <laughs> And how, what's my goal in helping you to develop kind of the skills, resources to connect with those people? That's the go-to piece. See, one of the things we do with a church, too, is we're talking about the evangelism uh, quotient. That is, if there's 250 adults in, a, say, a congregation, and if everybody had two to three, you know, non-Christian friends, now you've got this evangelism quotient of 750 people. And we're going to talk about the circle of three in a minute. Now we can begin to see how can we... Advance the gospel in that. Now, do you see as we, we talk about juggling these three balls of go to, come to, and do good, and do you see how they're all interrelated? Because it's like, remember when we used to do the uh, seeker-friendly churches, you know? And what I saw with so many seeker-friendly churches is that probably after maybe a year trying it, they'd all die out slowly and you go back because <laughs> nobody had non-Christian friends that they could invite. Or that they invited them once and they didn't come back and they didn't have enough of a relationship with them to kind of build on it. And because the reality is, is why should 
you know, if they're not in relationship with you, why should they come to an event that they'd feel uncomfortable with? But if they're in relationship with you and they kind of like you, they start to think, oh, maybe there's other people in this church kind of like, you know, Craig here. And I like Craig, so if Craig's representative of those other people, then maybe they're not so bad. Or that if Craig, and this has always been my philosophy, is that if my unbelieving friends invite me to do something with them, I will turn down everything else to try to do it with them. And I've blown it in one setting, not doing that, but I'm learning my lesson. And I try to do something first with them before I invite them. I, I try to go to their camp first before I invite them into my church camp because that's showing that I value them as a person. And so if that go-to piece isn't there, you know, the come-to is just going to be, you know, whoever shows up or nobody shows up. You know, it's kind of crickets in this meeting. <laughs> and so you see how the, the three balls go together? And then with the do-good is that we're training people how to start faith conversations, and so if the do-good is targeted in areas where there's going to be sustainable relationships, then conversations are going to happen rather than just being a giveaway that I quickly do. See where I'm coming from? And so, but you see the, man, as a church, you can really do some exciting, kind of some creative things here. But it starts with go to, come to, and do good. Let's hit next slide. And this is, what I've seen is that there's kind of four critical skills you need to provide training in for people. And Mary Shaler is going to touch on the first two of these in the session, next session, and then the fourth session tomorrow morning. But here's four simple skills. How do you help people just make friends with those outside of Christ? And quite frankly, for, for a lot of you, man, this is just something you just naturally do this. Others of us, you know, we've been caught up in kind of the church ghetto and we forget kind of how to connect with people. You know, something simple we learned when we moved into our new neighborhood and we decided we wanted to make our neighborhood our kind of mission field. So we invited one family over, neighbors over for dinner and had really a good time with them. And, uh, and we kept thinking, oh, maybe they're going to reciprocate. Well, about eight months later, they reciprocated. And what we discovered is that they don't invite people over for dinner unless it's their neighbor, you know, unless it's their relatives. I mean, really, that was kind of it. Yeah, it's a pretty private, but, you know, as Christians, we just, you know, invite everybody into our homes. And, and, and we had to, and, we, and, she, and so the, the wife felt high amount of pressure to duplicate what my wife did in terms of a nice meet. You know how that goes. And and so it took them eight months to get back. And we thought, well, if we do this again, which we've done, is we're just going to invite people over for a simple dessert or buy some cookies or Kroger's and have some tea. See what I'm saying? It's those little things that we learn about how do we just make friends with people. And, um, but then we're making friends so that we can then start faith conversations. And for example, I, uh, and I blew it, but I got another opportunity. One, when we first met my one neighbor talking over the fence, he said, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm with the Navigators, a Christian organization. And he goes, oh, the blankety-blank Navigators. I was involved. I met the blankety-blank Navigators when I was in the Navy. <laughs> now I work construction, you know, and I, so, you know, profanity doesn't bother me, but I was kind of surprised by this guy. And I was just taken back. And he wasn't, you know, mad at the Navigators. He just is has a lot of profanity in there, and, uh, and, and I just wasn't thinking fast enough. But since then, we've had several faith conversations. His one son is 
struggled with some marital issues and different things, and I've prayed for him, and he's prayed for me on some stuff with my grandchildren, and, and we've had some faith conversations because I took the time to cultivate a friendship, starting faith conversations, and then training people to share my story. You know, the old classic testimony, right? Can you, in less than three minutes, and maybe even in less than one minute, describe either how you came to faith or why this faith in Jesus has made a difference in your life. Can you do that in less than three minutes and maybe only in one minute without Christian words <laughs> and in a way that somebody could connect with? And so, you know, kind of what are you doing to provide training in doing something like this? By the way, one of the best training resources, another paid political announcement in the Navigators 2.7 series, uh, they've really got an excellent section in there in helping people write out their life story and then to be able to share it. So I'm sharing with teaching people how to share my story and then sharing his story. You know, one of the things we teach people is, is how do you share the, the gospel in one verse? You know, the one verse bridge or the one verse gospel. You can Roman, you know, Romans 5.8 or Romans 6.23 or even John 3.13. And so in one verse, how could you capture the gospel with somebody? And so we see this as kind of minimal training we want to provide people with. And you can add other things. You can put apologetics on this. There's lots of other stuff. But we thought these are the four skills. We got three strategies and then four simple skills. This makes sense? And so that we try to, like one church I've been helping, they went from the big workshop approach, which you can do that, and they've incorporated into their microgroups. So part of their microgroups is we're going to work on these four skills at different areas of time over the next year or so that people are involved with us. So that in a micro group, we can practice those things and kind of role play. Okay, so that makes sense? So four skills, and Mary is going to build on these in the next two sessions. All right, then there's two places. And, uh, and this is, again, for, I think as a church, you need to sort out where are we going to relationally invest. Sometimes it might be a network, I'm going to pull the next slide up. And so what's, and all of us have networks, and you could fill in the different circles there. You know, work could be a network. A hobby might be a network. Like my wife is a master gardener, and she's just developed this whole network of, you know, ladies, primarily women, that she's connected with now. And, uh, you know, it could be work. It could be clubs. It could be things you do with your children, you know, hobbies that you have. One of the things you notice in a network is that it's kind of, I'm the common center of that network. You know, I'm kind of at the center of it. Doesn't, doesn't make it bad or anything, but that's a reality. Versus the next slide is the idea of a neighborhood. And here's a way to think about a neighborhood, that a neighborhood is this group of people that I regularly and intentionally associate with investing time and energy to build long-term relationships. So it could be a physical neighborhood, you know, where I live, some of you, it could be the workplace is your neighborhood, but it's a place where it's a group of people that I regularly and intentionally associate with, and I invest time and energy to build long-term relationships. And so I've seen churches do two th both things, you know, uh, that one is that we're, we're really a church of our evangelism strategies based on networks, you know, that we're involved in, and others that, like I'm involved with a, a, a an urban church that um, is a, in an Appalachian poor community. And, uh, and really, the church is kind of the, one of the only shows in town. What's fascinating is that people don't invite people into their homes to do things. 
Uh, and but they'll invite them to a church and to a building. So the building kind of becomes the center of that neighborhood. And it is a place where people actually still walk to church, given that neighborhood. And so in that case, the church and the neighborhood becomes a focus of what they do in terms of their evangelism strategy. And so those are the two places. So as you're thinking through as a church, where do you want to invest? You know, I can invest in a network approach, or we can invest in a neighborhood approach. That makes sense? And so that, again, for a church, what are you going to intentionally do? Invest in a network or invest in a neighborhood? All right, so you've got two places, and then we've got the three. And what is the three? And so we're narrowing this thing down, all right? And so we're starting with a big macro picture, go to, come to, do good. We're talking about four skills, two places, and now three people. In fact, our pastor preached on this last week. Brent says, okay, how are you doing with your circle of three? You know, kind of three non-Christian friends that I'm praying for, and I'm figuring out how do I move the gospel, start faith conversations with, so that everybody in the church is thinking and praying about their circle of three. And so that big picture, three strategies, you know, four skills, you know, two places, Circle of three, and now a process. And this, again, is in your notes. What I found is that evangelism is often a process, right, of moving people from building a relationship, creating an interest in Jesus, God, the Bible, faith. How do I then lead them to insight? And then what's a way that I could encourage Holy Spirit conviction? <laughs> And because a lot of times in our evangelism training, we kind of jump from the one, from the relationship to encouraging their conviction, right? And uh, share the illustration or whatever it might be. And, and, but we miss those in-between steps that the reality is a lot of people are traveling and are in those in-between steps. And so one is just building a relationship. We see the example of Matthew, right, and Jesus and in the midst of that social gathering, and so I'm building a relationship. I'm just doing some basic things with somebody, introducing myself, praying for a friend, seeing how I can serve them, identifying with Christ in some way. I'm just building a relationship. Then I'm creating interest. We see this in Acts 17 with Paul at Athens, right? It's kind of creating an interest. How can I pray for this person? How can I ask where you are on your spiritual journey? Then I'm leading to insight with Jesus at the woman at the well, right? We look at the conversation. He's leading it to an insight about himself. And then I'm encouraging conviction. So we got Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. And hey, he's right at time. Conviction's ready. Holy Spirit's at work. Okay, let, let's make a faith decision here. Now, here's what I'd like you to do. Is at the top of that page, next to that little chart, uh, be, yep, right there, I want you to stop and think, if you had to put in a circle of three, who would those three people be? Now, they could be family members, people at work, immediate neighborhood, you know, people who, hobbies, whatever it might be. Could be that the hairdresser that you see every month, uh, you know, that individual could be in that circle of three. Then I'd like you to take that circle of three, and which of these boxes would you put them in? What do you think they are in this spiritual process? Does that make sense? Is there somebody you need to build a relationship with, create interest with, lead to insight, or to encourage conviction? So take that circle of three and then place those people in one of those four boxes. And then when you put that person into uh, one of those uh, identified where they are in the process, then maybe put a check by something that, hey, here's a little step I could take with that person.
There's a little step I could take with that person. So just out of curiosity, uh, what were some of the steps that uh, maybe a mark that you could potentially take with somebody and where they are? Maybe just share a couple here. Got a neighbor, invite them to a men's group. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, invite somebody, yeah. If there's a, uh, yeah, again, assessing where they are, you know. Yeah, very good. How about anybody else? A little step you could take. Engaging with an unbeliever on a crisis situation. You know, yeah. Death has gone rapidly yes. to where I can go to passing on something meaningful because of the crisis. Yes. Open the door wider. Yes. Yeah, very good, because you went to, obviously, in relationship with them. And if we're in relationship, we can spot those crises, can't we? Yeah, and then trust God to kind of step through that open door. How about one more thing, a little step you could take? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, another good question, where are you in your spiritual journey? Another question I often ask is that, you know, kind of all of us have God stories in our life, you know, and so kind of what's your God story? You know, what, what, what do you think about God? How, what's your story about God? And uh, so instead of asking him, do you go to church or what's your church background? It's kind of what's your God story? And that's an open-ended question and allow people to contribute. But these are the kind of things that Mary's going to do with us the next session and then the session tomorrow morning is really focus on this process of evangelism and then, yeah, how do we build relationships, start faith conversations. Now, what I told you in the beginning that I wasn't going to give you a, a formula and or a franchise or a program, but to give you some principles. And we talked about three principles, and those three are go to, come to, do good, all right? And we talked about four skills, you know, building relationships, starting faith conversations, sharing my story, sharing his story. We talked about two places, networks and neighborhoods. And so as a church, where do you want to invest? A circle of three. And then the idea that this is a process, and we need to prayerfully ask the Lord, where are people in that process? Last thing I want to do is talk about vision again. So we can bring up the last one. Like I said, my uh, wife is a master gardener, and so we're both gardeners. Actually, we prefer the term yardener because our property doesn't have enough sunlight to really grow a garden. So we, we grow flowers and bushes and stuff. And, and um, at least in Ohio, the big time of the year is around May 15th. That's the last frost date in Ohio. And so, you know, you can plant after that date, not having a fear of uh, your plants getting zapped. And so this is a big deal in Columbus, Ohio. The one nursery we go to, Garden Center, literally has a policeman out in the street directing traffic. <laughs> There's so many people coming in, you know, on that frost date to buy stuff. And so I'm standing in line, you know, on that frost date day. And literally, it's probably between here and that wall. And there's four lines like that. And I've got my cart full of flowers and plants and shrubs. And I started thinking, you know, I mean, literally, it's, you know, you got these four lines going on. And I'm thinking, you know, the goal of this nursery is to get rid of all of their plants and to get all their plants planted out there in hundreds, probably thousands of homes, you know, in the Columbus area. So their goal is to get rid of their plants. Now, a few days before that, 
you know, I went to, uh, you know, our local botanical garden, you know, the Franklinton Conservatory. And if you've ever been to a botanical garden, you know, the, the plants there stay there, right? And so in this one, the conservatory, you've got the, the green, you know, you've got the orchid room, the bonsai room, the desert room, the rainforest room. And you go in and you watch the plants, and, but you can't take them home with you. And so I started thinking, my mind works in odd ways. I'm there with my cart, you know, thinking, okay, now which one of these should the church be like? This nursery or the garden center that's trying to get rid of its plants, or kind of this conservatory that's keeping them. I don't know what you would say, but it should be like the garden, right? And so how are we, you know, releasing people, you know, to every corners of our community, you know, to kind of be Jesus' representative. And so they're going, and then we're creating appropriate, sensitive ways that they can invite their friends to come to something. And then how are we doing good in our community? And so our goal is to kind of raise people up and get them out there and release them. And by the way, and the other side of that, to release them, is that we got to be sensitive about how much we schedule in our churches. Because sometimes we can so overschedule people, they don't have time to make friends. The other thing I found is for a lot of believers, we overschedule ourselves. In that how many Bible studies sometimes should you be in? And every time you're doing something in an evening, maybe I could be investing that with, that's when my neighbor is available, or a friend at work, we could do something. And so that we want to be released every corner of our communities to bear fruit for Jesus. And so to do that, we need to be people who are going to go to people as churches, develop some attractive ways for people to come to, and then just how can we serve? How can we do good? Let me pray for us, closing. Thanks, Father, for this time together and, and to talk about some big picture issues, to look at what churches could be like as we embrace a philosophy of really being gospel carriers, the men and women planted in every corner of our community to start faith conversations with others about yourself. Father, I pray for the men and women here that, you know, we would have raised their sights a little bit on what evangelism could look like. We've given them some principles and some practical strategies to perhaps to move forward and to influence how their church does evangelism. Because, we, Father, we know that you want us to live on mission. Just as you told that demon-possessed man that you freed to go back home, tell your friends how the Lord's had kindness on you. And, Father, we want to be people who are sent to do that, just to share with people how you've had kindness on this, on us. And so help us to do that. Help us to do that in our churches, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. That's it for today's episode. Check out the sampler for Bobby Harrington's book with Alex Absalom called Discipleship That Fits. Download this for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Discipleship That Fits. Thanks for listening. Until next time.